0: As we study God's Word together this morning, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 79, Psalm 79. There the psalmist Asaph speaks to us in this song of lament, and here's what he says. "O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your namesake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord." But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. The title of this morning's message I take from Psalm 79, 9, Help Us, O God, of Our Salvation. The reason why I take that title from verse 9 is because all of us as believing people need the help of God, the deliverance of God, the hope of God for our salvation. I mentioned a moment ago before reading this psalm that it is classified as a song of lament. What is a song of lament? There are several, many in the psalms. What does it mean? Well, A song of lament is like a a funeral dirge, a song of intense sorrow, which carries with it all the emotions of a plea of action by God to do something for us in a time of unbelievable sadness. You could even add to this that the psalm is additionally, or at least has elements of, imprecation. Now, that may be a word that you don't readily use or understand what it means, but imprecation is just another word for cursing, cursing, and not in the, not in the, sense of uh, cursing like we understand that term in our own day, but cursing in the sense of bringing down God's wrath uh, upon those who are hurting us. So this Psalm, Psalm seventy nine, has bits of imprecation in it, cursing, bringing cursing to those who are savagely beating and killing and wounding the people of God. And this psalm of lament and these imprecatory statements are all by the people of God asking their God to curse or to judge the pagan nations around Israel who have blasphemed God's name due to their dealings with God's people. And what appears to be the background to this particular psalm? Well, Jerusalem has fallen, and apparently the children of God have been exiled, uh, we think probably to a Babylonian captivity. And uh, maybe just before they exiled, they're looking over the city of Jerusalem particularly And these survivors, the ones who haven't themselves been slaughtered in this siege and ransacking of the city, they are now looking over their capital, and they're seeing the absolute destruction and are utterly dumbstruck at the devastation that they're seeing. It's their homeland. It's their capital city. And especially they're viewing their beloved but now ruined temple which stood, of course, for the very dwelling place of God Himself, the locus of their worship, the the center of their worship of Yahweh. And these survivors have been left perhaps directly after the siege, as I said, but now they're witnessing the virtual obliteration of all that they hold dear. It's a sadness that is unbelievable. And what Asaph is doing is he's, as the choir leader, leading Israel in a song, a dirge, a lament. This is a song in a minor key. And what he does from my reading of the text is give us three sections, three points, the plight, the plea, and the prayer. And I want you to see this as we go through this psalm. We've been going through these psalms consecutively, we've been doing so because we want to see what the Word of God has to say to us even in our own time, not just in Israel's history, but what can we take away from these psalms? How are we to sing them? Or perhaps for us, how are we to sing these songs in Israel's Psalter? And some of them, particularly here in book three of the psalms, are psalms of lament because Israel has been decimated. They've been hauled off to a captivity. Psalm 79 seems to indicate to us that maybe it's a Babylonian captivity. And here's what they're doing according to verses 1 to 4. They're describing the plight, the plight. Let me read again verses 1 to 4 so you can get the flavor of it as we study God's Word together. O oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the air for food, birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors mocked and derided by those around us. It's unbelievably sad, isn't it? And I want you to notice, first of all, the devastating situation in which these people of God are finding themselves. Verses 1 to 4 give us a very, very bleak picture of their plight, as I've just read. And I want you to notice something else. Would you also notice that when Asaph speaks to Yahweh, He's appealing to the fact that these who are suffering under the siege of the land are God's own people. These are God's chosen ones. Look at verse 1. He declares, does Asaph, O God, the nations, uh, that's the Hebrew term goyim, uh, the the, the pagan nations around Israel. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance using the word inheritance as a description of Judah. Again in verse 1, they have defiled your holy temple. Verse 2 says, they have given the bodies of your servants to the birds, and even for a fourth time, Asaph cries out in verse 2, your faithful, your faithful ones are given to the beasts of the earth. Do you notice all the your statements? Your inheritance, your holy temple, your servants, your faithful. All of this is to say that Asaph is describing the plight of God's chosen people who are his very inheritance, his holy temple, his servants, his faithful ones who are being slaughtered by the ungodly pagan nations like the Babylonians who are not in any sense the faithful followers of Yahweh. He's appealing to God. These are, these are your people, your inheritance, your temple, your servants, your faithful. Can you hear the anguish in Asaph's voice? It's powerfully sad, isn't it? This matter of God's chosen people, sinful as they may be, are nevertheless being savagely brutalized. Tortured, and even eventually, of course, killed by unbelieving beasts—not the animals, the persons. About the Babylonians, they're they're taking the lives of God's own people. And by the way, this is repeated many times in the Psalms, as you know, if you've read Israel's Psalter. The psalmist, like Asaph here in Psalm seventy-nine. And other psalms, as I have said, to say nothing of the prophets, even like Habakkuk. None of these psalmists or prophets can fathom how God would allow these ungodly renegades to work tirelessly to destroy God's own people. And it wouldn't be bad enough that Jerusalem has been utterly decimated, including the destruction of their physical temple, the very locus of worship where the people of God would come to give their praises to Yahweh. But in this mess, this this mass melee of morbid madness, these who have survived the massacre are now to be carted off in exile while their own brothers and sisters and undoubtedly even their children have had, according to verse 3, do you see it? Their blood poured out like water all around Jerusalem. I can't imagine a more ghastly scene. It's unthinkable. What cruelty. And in the ancient Near East, what we call the Middle East today, it would have been a the height of cultural insensitivity for there to be a lack of burial of the dead. This would have been a a massive social fate of those human beings' bodies that are left as food for scavengers, animals, and birds of the air. It's unthinkable. You see your, your people. There's a corporate solidarity here among God's people, and they're watching as their loved ones, their bodies are lying in the streets, and the birds and the beasts, they're coming after these bodies for food. It's terrible. And what of those who are doing the killing? Look at verse 4. It gives us some sense of it. This is their attitude. We have become a taunt, Asaph says about his people, "a, a reproach to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. In other words, they're lamenting because not only are their relatives' bodies being eaten by scavengers in the streets. At the very same time, those who are doing the murdering are mocking and deriding and taunting and reproaching Israel. I mean, it's bad enough for their land to be annihilated, but now they're the object of scorn and ridicule for the bloodthirsty savages who are stopping at nothing to hurl their taunts and reproach upon God's people. So, in the midst of all of this, and if you yourself were even there, perhaps you and I would be one of those, even those later who've been held captive and even marched off to Babylon, who would say, where's God? Where's our, where's our Savior? Is He alive? Does He... Does he know what's happening to us? What would be your first response? Would it be anger? Hostility? Would you want to immediately start to hatch a plan, a, a plot to cast revenge upon those who've done such, such deeds upon your people? I mean, that would seem to all of us, wouldn't it? To be a decidedly right move some kind of, in our minds, a righteous response, so you and I might think? And if it were the right thing to do, the right response, would it be out of the fact that you and I would be seething with such anger until we could take vengeance upon our loved ones, upon our people, and have at some ripe opportunity the inclination to return their favor with taunts and reproaches of our own, mocking them because now we have the upper hand upon these beasts, these unbelievers, these pagans of the world? Well, if you have studied Psalm 79 before or if you're reading it with me this morning, you know that's not what Asaph encourages God's people to concentrate on. No, not at all. No, He rather encourages them to go straight to Yahweh Himself and ask Him to end their suffering and their pain. And He does so in the form of a plea in verses 5 going all the way through the first part of verse 10. So I've given you the, the plight in the first four verses and now the The plea, and it starts with a scripturally, oft repeated, heart rending, emotionally charged question in verse 5. Here's the plea, and here's what Asaph is leading the children of Israel to do as they sing this song of lament How long, O Lord? How long? How long, Yahweh? And you can, you can hear the pathos in the voice of Asaph as he leads them in the singing. As I said, it's a, it's a funeral dirge. It's, it's a song in a minor key. They're, they're hurt. They're beaten down. They're being held captive. They've seen their loved ones, even their children die at the hands of a marauding maniacal band of pagan worshippers, worshipping all kinds of gods and not Yahweh God. And so they ask the question, wouldn't you? I would. How long, O Lord? And you know, this gets at the question of revenge that I posed a moment ago. And when you read, for instance, maybe a couple of verses from another psalm, You would maybe ask yourself, no wonder they've prayed this prayer, sung this song in Psalm 137, verses eight and nine. Says this, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Do you hear that? The psalmist in Psalm 137 goes on to say, Blessed shall he be who takes your little one, little ones and dashes them against the rock. You see the, the sense of the crying out, not only of mercy, but of payback. This is a, this is a major imprecatory statement from the heart of a grieving people. But instead of seeking immediate revenge and becoming so bitter and angry, so as to be forever hateful and hating one's captors, Asaph rather goes right to Yahweh himself. Do you notice that? He doesn't try to foment his people in in a rage. He doesn't try to get them stirred up so that they can go against their captors. No, he goes to his God himself, and he makes a solemn plea in order to try and understand why Yahweh is angry with his own people. For maybe you're saying, Lord, the only reason that this has been done to our people is that somehow your anger is burning against us. So he goes to Yahweh and says, how long, O Lord? And you know, that's a refrain, that's a question that is mentioned several times in our Old Testament. But instead of focusing upon the enemies of God, at least at this moment, though Asaph will do that later in this psalm, he first wonders aloud about why it seems that God has abandoned His people. That's the sense of things. And he even says with a second and even a third question here in verse 5, will you be angry forever? forever? Will you ever be merciful? And then this third question, will your jealousy burn like fire? Are you always going to burn with fire against us? When will that turn to others? I want to stop here for a moment and talk about some of the implications of this because this is one of those psalms, the idea not only of the lament of God's people, but these imprecatory or cursing words of judgment against those who are the enemies of God. There are a lot of people that say very matter-of-factly, Uh, this shouldn't be sung by God's people. Maybe they were sung by the ancient Israelites, but not Christian people, not the people of today. We're just a people of love. And I want to pause here and ask ourselves some nagging, gnawing questions that I suspect we've all asked at many times and in many seasons, not just in our own life, but as we're reading the Psalms And you and I would say, well, I want to read the psalms for comfort. I want to read the psalms for joy. I want to be able to to sing these songs. And and why is it that I'm reading one psalm that speaks so wonderfully well of God's mercy and His love and His kindness? And then I have to read a psalm like this that talks about judgment and how long, O Lord, will you be angry with your people? Why aren't you getting after those who have injured and killed your people. Maybe we could say it like this. When, when you are hurting or you're feeling betrayed by others or you've been miserably mistreated or perhaps even something altogether differently, you've been suffering for a considerable length of time, And you've been wondering about the ways of God, the ways God has been dealing with you, or failing in your mind in his dealing with others who've injured you, hurt you, mistreated you, wrongfully dealt with you, ways you've perceived that God is even dealing with the world. Maybe in our time, a a pestilence, a, a plague a virus, people dying seemingly indiscriminately uh, through, quote-unquote, no fault of their own. Perhaps you and I have a question even today, how long, O oh Lord? How long? I've asked those questions, so have you. And I suspect we'll continue to ask them. How long, O oh Lord? Will you be angry with us forever? I mean, it's not to say that God isn't good and that He doesn't love us as His people, but you and I at times seem not to be seeing the answers to our long-standing prayers. Why? Why aren't you answering me, Lord? You've been severely criticized, perhaps maybe for your commitment to Christ. You, you've been laughed at, you've been scorned, you've been mocked, you've been derided like these Israelites of old. They, they might even be dogging your steps, perhaps at work, perhaps in your own family. You've chosen to follow Jesus Christ. You've left mother and father and sister and brother, and now you're paying the price. You've been ostracized. Some people have even gone to their death because they've chosen Jesus Christ coming out of some pagan religion. When is the Lord going to come to our aid? Well, of course, I understand that believers are going to be always and forever persecuted for their stand for Him. Yes, of course, it does say in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We know that. But what I'm talking about is this seemingly never-ending barrage of relentless taunts and reproaches without a response from our God, or so it seems. Your prayers, my prayers seem to be going unanswered, and the silence is deafening. Brass heavens, we might call it. Prayers ascending and coming right back down. If this is part of what you're grappling with or what I'm grappling with, let me encourage you with an answer from Jesus' own life. I've been reading a book over the last couple of weeks, a brand new book by Dane Ortland entitled Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And I want you to know that I'm suffering greatly with the loss of my wife after a huge battle with cancer. And this book has been ministering to me, even as I've asked the Lord a hundred questions about this loss. And Jesus, He knows what it means to be abandoned. Can you relate to this silence from heaven don't forget that our Lord Jesus himself experienced all kinds of hostility and abuse while on his earthly pilgrimage. And there were oftentimes, I'm sure, that he felt lonely, felt this sense that other human beings around him were misunderstanding him and criticizing him. And of course, the Jews wanted to surround him and take his own life. Dane Ortland says in. His book, Gentle and Lowly, he, referring to Jesus, knows what it is to be thirsty, hungry, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, tortured, and killed. He knows what it is to be lonely. His friends abandoned him when he needed them most. Had he lived today, every last Twitter follower and Facebook friend would have unfriended him when he turned 33. He, referring to Jesus, who will never unfriend us. Is it no wonder that the Apostle Peter exhorted us in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Oh, my dear Christian friends, I want to also remind you of something right here in verses 6 and 7 of this very psalm that Asaph models for us and it is this he he isn't pleading with god out of his own self-interest of course a part of that is there for him and for his people but it's not as though he's solely concerned for himself and nobody else sort of the rugged individualism he's only he's only caring about his own life and his own future but he's looking to his fellow believers and he's leading them in song and It's the world. It's the unbelieving world. It's the savage world of pagans, those who are hostile to God. No, Asaph is not thinking about himself. He's pleading for his people to sing together in corporate solidarity this song of lament. And here in verses 6 and 7, he adds these pleas of imprecation on behalf of God's chosen people. Listen to how he goes about doing this in verses 6 and 7. Pour out your anger, verse 6 says, on the nations that do not know you. You see where his focus is? You see where his mindset is? Lord, you're the God of your people to be sure but you're also calling on all the peoples of the earth to follow you. And there are some who simply will not do it. That's why he says here, pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. You you see, there's an ultimate reckoning. For all who don't know the Lord God of the universe... We would say it like this, who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. These kingdoms that do not call upon your name. It doesn't say they cannot. It tells us that they will not. They do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob, it's another name for Israel, and laid waste his habitation, his house, the gathering of his people. They refuse to know God. You see what's happening at the heart of this imprecatory psalm, this song of lament? This is a kind of of prayer. This is the kind of song that says that God is to rightly curse, rightly judge all of those who refuse to know him by faith. That's what's going on here. And I know I hear the response, that seems so harsh, that seems so judgmental. How can we as Christian people be offering a song, let alone a prayer to God, that he pour out his anger on anyone? It seems so unloving, it seems so kind, it seems so judgmental. I mean, aren't we supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves? And it seems as though these people are being led by the song leader, Asaph himself, to sing about pouring out anger on rival nations? Well, it might even seem to you that it's contradicting these New Testament passages that talk about loving your neighbor as yourself. And it even says that in the Old Testament, Book of Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. What's going on here? Is there is there a contradiction? No. No, there isn't, and I'll tell you why. Let's answer some of these questions because this is really something that trips up believers all the time. They, they, they read these psalms and they say, I don't want to sing that, I don't want to pray that, I don't want to believe that, but I, I want to give you a couple of principles here, and this is very, very important. Number one, please do not let it escape your notice that Asaph is leading them in a song which is exalting the name of Yahweh, his person, his character. He's the only true and living God. He isn't pleading, Asaph, for these people of Israel to destroy their captors simply because they're bloodthirsty, uh, simply because they're like the other nations of the world who are just simply trying to uh, kill and destroy each other. He, He isn't trying to get them to be uh, fomenting up to a lather so that they can go out and, and destroy those who have destroyed them. It is true here because of the very text of what Scripture says and even history, which we'll look at in a moment with this invasion of Babylon, that these people have been mistreated. They have been hurt. They have been dealt with in very savage ways. That's true. And in and of itself, Israel has been savagely targeted by the Babylonians. Their temple's been destroyed, trashed, their their city, their their place of dwelling, Jacob's habitation, verse 7 says. But it's happening by a nation who is willfully refusing to follow Yahweh. And of course, there are Mountains of people and cultures and times and seasons in the history of our world where people say, well, see, there you go again, you believers in Yahweh, you you Christian people, uh, you have to say that there's only one way, uh, but there are many ways to God. No, the Bible is very, very clear that we are to bow our knees in worship and praise of Jesus Christ as King, as Lord of the universe, as God in human flesh. He says in John 14, does Jesus himself, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by or through me. We cannot forget, and we have to hasten to repeat That these lament psalms, these imprecatory statements, these statements of cursing judgment upon others for following their foreign gods and not Yahweh God is, in fact, what we should be doing. For those who are following pagan idols of their own making and couldn't care less about Israel's God, we have to warn them, and then... When they come against us, we have to warn them again, we have to go to our God, and we have to ask God to do with them what He wills. And not only this, but remember, these these pagan gods, they're, they're leading, or so the people assume that these pagan gods are doing so, leading their people to the committing of heinous sins, even to the wiping out of all Israel in the process, if they could. Don't forget that verse 4 explains their, their motives, their tauntings, their reproaches, their mockings, their derision against Jacob, against Israel. I mean, when you and I see clearly in a psalm like this one, Psalm 79, and there are other psalms which too speak of this lamentation of God's people and the imprecations of God's people and how they're being treated, we have to understand God calls upon His people to plead and cry out to Him, encouraging them, pleading with them to plead for Him to deal with those who do injustice toward them, to, to encourage them to, to bring righteous justice on the earth and sovereign mercy so that God's very name will be avenged so that then and only then will God be glorified because He has heard the cries of His people. Do you remember in the Egyptian bondage of over 400 years that they were crying their prayers and tears to Yahweh for deliverance, pleading with Him? The Bible says that God said in the ultimate and final sense, I've heard your prayers, your pleas. This is what's going on here. If you can see what I'm showing you to be an accurate understanding of how these lament psalms and these imprecations, these curses are to be rightly understood, I think you can also see how Asaph now follows up his pleas for this righteous judgment in verses 5 and 6 with what we are in verses 8, 9, and 10 saying are transparent acknowledgments of Israel's own sin. Do you see that as a part of it too? Look at what he says in verse 8. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Oh, this is a twist. This is a turn. It's not just Asaph leading Israel to praise God, pray to God, ask God in a psalm, in a song, to go after the wicked Babylonians. But Asaph is honestly, transparently acknowledging that Israel, in some sense, because of their sin, even deserved, in some sense, this kind of judgment by God Himself. And Asaph acknowledges it, do not remember against us our former iniquities. What is he saying? This again is that corporate solidarity. Uh, Israel as though it's speaking of one man and that one man's sin, our former iniquities. Uh, These would have been the fathers and the grandfathers and the great-grandfathers of Asaph and his people, and they sinned and they sinned great sins. So part of the idea when God allows pagan nations to overthrow Israel is because God is teaching them a massive lesson about their own iniquities and about what those iniquities deserve. No wonder he says in verse 8, Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Yes, it's true. It's absolutely true that when God tells a people, His chosen ones, His very own, that they must follow Him and they give a a, a tacit agreement to do so, and then they go off and they, they pursue other gods, even some of these pagan gods of these nations around them. And their iniquities are high-handed sins against Yahweh Himself so that they are deserving at points God's justice and even the idea of God teaching them myriads of lessons by taking them off into captivity to a place like Babylon? No wonder Asaph then says, please forgive us. That's what's meant by do not remember against us our former iniquities. He asks for forgiveness on behalf of his people. And of course he says here, let your compassion come speedily to meet us. We need your mercy. Why? Because in this savagery of our own land and in this being brought very low and now brought into captivity in a pagan nation like Babylon, it's because we deserved it. We deserved it. We didn't think of you. We didn't follow you. We didn't respond to you in some sense we acted like we were no different than these pagan nations around us and so he's confessing to Yahweh that part of the reason that Israel is in the huge mess that they're in is because of Israel's own pride do you want to see this turn in your bibles over to second kings in the history of Israel, do you want to see what's really going on in the in the backdrop of this story? Uh, this might very well be the place in which we find what Israel was doing. Look at Second Kings. Just before you get into chapter twenty-four of Second Kings, you read about Jehoiakim. Do you remember him? He was the uh, king in Judah. Verse 36 of Second Kings 23 says, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. And he did, notice this, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Committed such grievous sins. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In chapter 24, verse 1 says, In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him, and the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord. You see, the Lord is judging them. To remove them, verse 3 says, out of his sight, For the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Now, the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place, and the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of El Nathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. And you read the rest of this chapter, chapter 24, and you read chapter 25, and the fall and captivity of Judah, and this could be very well what's happening here depicted in Psalm 79. I mean, God is dealing with the Israelites because of their own sins against him. See, you have to factor that in here. I mean, sure, it's true that Asaph is leading his people to say, how long, O Lord, how long will these, these marauding nations come against us and, and, and bring us into captivity and force us to try to worship their foreign gods? Yes, it's true, but Israel had so much as a people, their pride ever before them, and God was crushing their pride. No wonder Asaph says, for we are brought very low. You remember earlier in this message, I quoted First Peter 5, 6, and 7, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. You see, you can only be exalted, you can only be brought high, You can only be lifted above your dire circumstances when you are first brought low. The historical record of 2 Kings shows us how low they were. They they were often likened, the children of Israel, uh, to be a faithless, adulterous wife who went after other lovers, other foreign gods, married foreign women. They they spurned their faithful husband Yahweh. That's what the first three chapters of Hosea is all about. And that's why Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 16 and 17 and 18 speak of whoring after these other lovers as spiritual adultery. God's jealousy as spoken of in Psalm 79.5, is God's burning jealousy for His bride, Israel. But He won't be trifled with. And if Israel, if she strays from that relationship, He will punish her for her spiritual adultery, her apostasy. So is it any wonder that Asaph pleads for forgiveness here. Do not remember against us our sins. And he pleads for compassion. He says, Let your compassion come speedily to meet us. Or we could translate that word compassion as tender mercies. God's passionate emotional love. And that compassion is what God wants to give. Exodus. 34, 6, and 7, He's a God of compassion and steadfast love. Numbers 14, 18, Nehemiah nine, seventeen. Psalm 103, 8, and 17, Jeremiah 32, 18, and 19, Nahum 1, 3, they all say the same thing, that God is a God of compassion. He wants to dispense His mercy, His love, His compassion upon His beloved people. But they must be faithful. The reasons Asaph asks for such forgiveness and compassion is due not to their being good people, and that is completely sure because he's acknowledged their iniquities, both past. And now. look at verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, O God of our deliverance, for the glory of your name deliver us and atone for our sins. Now he's coming even into the present. He's not just talking about the sins of the past, the sins of his forefathers. He's also now talking about the sins of the present, atone for our sins. And why? Why does he do that? Why why is he asking for that? Well, he appeals to the right thing, doesn't he? For the glory of your name, God's name, his character, and for your name's sake. He appeals to God's very attributes, His his character, which is uh, represented by His name. Will you do it for the consistency, the proclamation to these these pagan nations that you are, in fact, a covenant-keeping God for your people, sinful and wicked as we are? Oh, we need you to maintain your covenant of grace. That's what we need, don't we? That's what you need. That's what I need. This is why these these pictures of Israel's sins and their need for forgiveness and grace and mercy are so powerful for us. That's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 that these are lessons for us. I mean, the children of Israel knew that God Is said to be long suffering, or maybe to say it in a different way, he's slow to anger, but he abounds in loving kindness. But we must repent, we must be faithful to follow him, we must do what he commands, we must love his commandments and do what is pleasing in his sight. And Asaph knows this, of course. And that's why he says in verse 10, Why should the nation say, where is their God? Lord, for the sake of your name, for the sake of your character, for the sake of showing yourself as high and exalted above all the would-be gods of the world who are not gods at all, why would you even want any nations to say perpetually where is their God. And so what kind of God do we serve? Well, He's a God who greatly delights to dispense His love, His compassion, His mercy, His grace to those whom He wills, to His His beloved ones. And through their faithfulness and their obedience to Yahweh, they receive such love and mercy and compassion and grace this is this is an amazing reality that god wants to dispense his grace and mercy to us in hosea's prophecy this is this is an amazing thing in hosea 6 listen to this hosea 6 verse 1 come let us return to the Lord. See, that's, that's repentance. That word return is that word for repentance. Let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us. In other words, yes, He's judged us. He's punished us that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. He'll bind our wounds after 2 days he will revive us and on the 3rd day he will raise us up that we may live before him do you see sometimes in the mysterious providence of god when he allows us to go through all the things that we're experiencing and that we're in enduring and we cry out to Him and we ask Him for mercy, we ask Him for grace, we ask Him for the forgiveness of our sins. We've been brought very low and we're asking Him now to exalt us and after we've been torn down, He may heal us, He may raise us up. See, that's a part of God's plan. That's a part of what He does. His, his anger is but for a moment but His mercy, His compassion, His loving kindness is forever. In this same prophecy of Hosea in chapter 11, this is is an amazing description of the Lord's love for Israel. Chapter 11, verse 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. That's the famous prophecy that's also quoted in the New Testament about Jesus. Verse 2, of Hosea 11 the more they were called the more they went away they kept sacrificing to the baals to the baals to the foreign gods and burning offerings to idols see they 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 were spiritually adulterous they were apostatizing from the faith That's what some of them did, of course. Verse 3 says, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim, that's another word for Israel, to walk. I took them up by my arms. Do you see the tenderness? But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Isn't that so tender? Verse 5, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. We had to put them in in captivity. We had to make them wander all over the earth and and be in captivity to, to nations like Egypt and Assyria because they refused to return to me, it says. The sword shall rage against their cities, and that's what's happening with Babylon here in Psalm 79. Consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. You see the point? Oh, He loves them. But if there are those in Israel who are faithless, they don't love Yahweh, they're going, to be, they're going to be taken into captivity. And ultimately, for some of those unbelieving Israelites, not the true remnant, but the unbelieving Israelites, you will not raise them up at all. But then in verse 8 of Hosea 11, he says this, and this is his tenderness now. This is for believing Israel. These are for the ones who've suffered like their unbelieving Israelite neighbors, but their true Israel, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those are two of the five cities that were a part of the plain in Sodom and Gomorrah, the other two cities, these were the ones who were destroyed, if you remember. Uh, how can I make you like them, he's saying. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger my jealous anger for you, I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. See when you when you add that component, Asaph knows what he's doing when this song has been constructed, and he's leading the Israelite people to sing to their God this song of lament. And yes, there are imprecatory statements of cursing. Deal with these these wicked nations around us, but deal with us too. Because we've sinned against you. I mean, when's the last time that you as a Christian might have said, what's God doing in America? It seems as though He's judging America. It seems as though we have all of these countries coming against us. It seems as though we have so many countries of the world who hate us and and what we stand for. And yes, that's true. But is part of the reason why America is in the shape that it's in? Is because of our own sins? And yet, when you talk about the believing people within America or the believing people around the world in whatever country in which they reside, can you ask the question, Lord, how long? And the answer is going to come back, I won't destroy you. I love you. You're my people. You're my elect, my chosen And for the glory of my name and for my own name's sake, here's my answer, how long, O Lord, until I determine in my sovereign pleasure that it's time. No wonder Jeremiah 9.24 says this, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. He delights in the practice of steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. And He will do it. He will right all wrongs in His time and for His purposes. In Jeremiah 32, 41, if you have never read that, you ought to Write that verse down, Jeremiah 32 41. In speaking of God inaugurating the new covenant, he declares this I will rejoice in doing them, that is his people, his believing people, I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. The most interesting phrase with all my heart and all my soul. Old Testament scholar, Dr. Walter Kaiser, writes about this verse. This is the only time in Scripture, he says, where God assures us that what He has said is said with all His heart and soul. That's what God wants to do. He wants to dispense His love and his mercy, and his kindness, and his righteousness, and his holiness with all his heart and all his soul. That's the plea. So you have the plight, the plea, and now very quickly the prayer. Look at the latter part of verse 10 in Psalm 79. Here's the the prayer now of Asaph and the people he's leading in song. Let The avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. here comes these rapid-fire judgment prayers, prayer requests for God to act swiftly against Israel's enemies, namely Babylon. Verse 10, Asaph appeals to God's character attribute of wrath. Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. God, avenge your people, even with our sin. Even though we've sinned against you, we, we've, we've sought to have our iniquities atoned for and to be forgiven And by the way, in verse 10, this is the third time the Hebrew word for poor has been used. Did did you see it before? In Psalm 79, 2, it says, They've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food and the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. Verse 3, They have poured out their blood like water. Wow. So, what would the prayer be? Verse 6, pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you. And here's another one in verse 10, let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Pour, 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 pour out, pour out, pour out because of the outpoured blood of your servants. Look at verse 11. This is an appeal to God's character of his mighty power and his preservation. Let the groans of the prisoners, those are the ones who've been taken captive by Babylon, let those who've been taken captive as prisoners come before you and with your great power, your your mighty power, preserve those who seemingly are doomed to die. Lord, help us. Give us Aid, come to us and deal with those who are standing against us. And then verse 12, he's appealing to God's character attribute of equity or fairness or justice. Notice what he says, return sevenfold. That might be that that number of perfection or completeness or fullness. Return to the full into the very lap of our neighbors, their taunts. Why? Because they've taunted you. And notice again his Godward direction, not just that they've taunted us as Israel, but they've taunted you, O Lord. You see, these, these imprecations, these curses, it's because God's name, His reputation is at stake. This is what these nations are doing. Where is your God? Reminds me of that latter part of 2 Peter, oh, where is the promise of His coming? All things remain as they are. God's not going to do anything. This is an appeal for God's justice, His equity, His fairness. You see, my friends, before you and I criticize these psalms and say that they're unchristian or, or they shouldn't be sung or, or we shouldn't use them as our own prayer prompts, you ought to think about what's actually being said and Why? God's reputation is at stake. God's, God's will, His promises, His purposes, uh, they're, they're all being challenged. And Asaph says, you, you need to understand who our God is. He's a God of avenging, a God of wrath. He will do what He says. He will do what He has promised. He's a God whose character is one of mighty power, and He's going to preserve those who are His own, whether in this life or in this life to come. He's a God whose character is one of equity and fairness and justice. This is a call for retribution. This is a call for recompense to be brought upon the wicked. We don't like to speak about this, but there are wicked people in our world and we ought to pray that God will deal with them if they will not repent, if they will not return, if they will not return to the very Creator who created them in His own very image, then we ask God to bring retribution and recompense. Not for uh, the the sole fact that they've injured us, they've hurt us, but for the reason that God's very character, His, His attributes, His very name is at stake. And then Asaph ends... His prayer like this, verse 13. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture. And that's gentleness, my friends. That's gentleness. That, that's what a shepherd does. He, he leads his sheep in the pasture to find nourishment, to find the, the right answers, to, to find what they need for their hunger and their thirst. We're your people, the sheep of your pasture. We'll give thanks to you for how long? Forever. Forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. You see, this is is the praise of our God we're talking about. This is the praise of our God who will deal with the wicked and who will forgive our iniquities and who will atone for our sins because He's the shepherd of the sheep of His pasture. This this certainly speaks of God's great tenderness toward His people. They're the sheep of His pasture, and He will be faithful to His covenantal promises. And that's why we'll give thanks to Him forever, throughout generation upon generation upon generation. We will continually recount His praise. As we end the message this morning, I quoted Walter Kaiser earlier about what he said regarding Jeremiah 32:41 and about it being the only time in scripture where God the Father assures us that what he has said is said with all his heart and with all his soul so i conclude with what dane ortland in his book gentle and lowly says about our lord jesus christ what walter kaiser says about god the father in jeremiah dane ortland says about jesus christ In the Gospels, here's what he says as we close. In the four Gospel accounts given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters of biblical text, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. In only one place, Dane Ortlund says, perhaps the most wonderful words ever uttered by human lips do we hear Jesus himself open up to us his very heart which, of course, is the statement quoted in Matthew 11:28 28 to 30, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God the Father will give us all that we need and will do so with all his heart and all his soul, and for which we will praise him forever. And our Lord Jesus Christ invites us indeed everyone, to come to Him, for He is gentle and lowly in heart. Therefore, I urge you, everyone who is listening to me now, to come to the Father's heart and soul to be forgiven through the gentle and lowly Jesus Christ, the one who died, was buried and raised again, so that we might be saved. Oh, God, help us in our salvation. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask for you to help us. Oh, God of our salvation. We need your deliverance from our sin. We've been brought low. It's not just our country. It's not just our world that has seen pestilence and plagues and viruses and wars and disasters and calamities. It's not just the Sin cursed earth that we're talking about, it's the sin that also resides in me, in us, for our wickedness, for our high handed rebellion, for our pride, even as it's been depicted here in Psalm 79. Israel's iniquities, their sins. We look to ourselves first, and we ask you, Jesus Christ, to forgive us. Take away our iniquities, and let your compassion come speedily to meet us. And Lord, if there is some calamity, some catastrophe that is besetting our nation. It is because you are giving us yet another opportunity to repent and to believe in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the gentle and lowly one who seeks in coming to us our repentance, our brokenness, and our acknowledgement that we've sinned against a holy God. And we deserve wrath. But even as the Old Testament declares, in your wrath, remember mercy. Be merciful to us and bring us the only Savior there is, Jesus the Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.